0: Hello and welcome to the Pot Shop Podcast, an Arsenal podcast for nerds. I'm Alex Towels. And I'm Alex Collings. And this week we have two games to talk about, as two games happened over the New Year weekend. We beat Brighton and then did not beat Newcastle. Wow, football. To do so, we have brought on Max Taylor from TopIns Talk. Hello, Max.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you.
0: Yes yeah, is wonderful to have you on and we're gonna have a lovely tactical breakdown of the brighton game a less tactical breakdown of the newcastle game uh and then we'll finish off with some little bit of transfer talk and of course everyone's favorite new segment alex's trivia book which is very fun and not just there so that i can tell my aunt that i made great use of this present Okay, let's get straight into it. Uh Max, the Brighton game. You're a Brighton fan. Uh what was it like watching your team get absolutely battered by the Arsenal and then stop getting battered by the Arsenal and start playing well again?
1: Well, I I start by saying I'm an Arsenal fan I'm a Brighton <laughs> I'm a Brighton admirer. They are uh, they're my second team which was more acceptable when they were struggling in the third tier of English football and is is now more difficult to uh to justify that they're a well-established Premier League club, um, but I was supporting Arsenal as the Arsenal fan, and uh, it was nice to see, as well as also frustrating, as a Brighton admirer. Um, but from an Arsenal perspective, I thought it was great. It obviously, helps when you start so well in both halves, and that really sets us up to, uh, to be successful for the rest of the game. Um, and then against Newcastle, it was kind of the opposite, just frustration. Uh, but yeah, Brighton game, it was, a very, it was a very good end to 2022.
0: Yeah, I, I think I agree there. Definitely a good end to 2022. But a nervy end to the game with Brighton kind of clawing their way back into it with a couple goals to make the last few minutes a bit nervier than you might have thought when it was 4-1 with about 20 minutes to go. What do you think was the catalyst for Brighton getting back into the game.
1: I think when you're when, when you're playing at home and you know, you sort of have a sense of, you know, there's a chance that that we can make a game of this. You can, you have the home crowd behind you. Brighton brought on a lot of their youngsters. Evan Ferguson scored his his first Premier League goal. They had other other youngsters like Jeremy Sarmiento and Julio and Ciso came on, so they had a bunch of energy sort of towards the end of the game. And obviously Matoma um scored initially, and then had that, that disallowed goal right at the end, which was going to be a really nervy sort of last six minutes of, of stoppage time. Um, but yeah, they had the crowd behind them. They had the momentum. They had a lot of fearless youngsters out there. And it was really the first time this season Arsenal have looked properly nervy at the end of the game. Um, I don't think there's too much to look into there. It was just, it happens. We sort of weathered the storm with a bit of luck, um, but made it out of there with a two-goal win. So. Yeah, I think it was just, just momentum and a and home crowd and and youngsters being youngsters. I think I agree
2: that I kind of rewatched the match expecting to see some sort of... Because also it did kind of come right after we brought on... We switched both of our fullbacks, so I thought maybe that there was something there. But yeah, I was watching it back, and there wasn't really anything there from a tactical perspective at all that led to Brighton kind of being able to turn the momentum in their favor, albeit a bit too late to, you know, completely get back in the game. I do think maybe both Tierney and Tomiyasu didn't have great cameos after coming on, a couple of heavy touches. Tomiyasu really struggled to deal with Matoma. Um but all all in all I don't think there was anything really tactical to worry about there in terms of what they did to us um
1: right at the end of the game. Yeah, and if anything it sort of uh emphasizes how well Ben White did against against Matoma on that side. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Before he came off. And you know, both of their goals were especially their second was a defensive error, an individual mistake by, by Saliba. So those things happen and um you know when you change both fullbacks, the shape and the structure is is going to, you know, be a bit be a bit wacky as they're trying to figure out, you know, having two different fullbacks on either side of, of the centre half. So it happens but you know, Yeah, I completely Like agree. you said, wasn't too much to look into. It is what it is, as they say. It is what it is.
0: Let's have a look back then to the start of the game, because Max, as you said, we had a very fast start with Saka getting us going with, I believe, one minute and four seconds on the clock when he put the ball into the back of the net. Uh, and we carried that momentum forward into the first half. Uh, Alex Collins, what did you make of our quick start against Brighton?
2: Uh, I think it was huge um, for us to kind of take that game into our advantage and kind of control it especially through the first half through the first 60 minutes of the game even um yeah i think one of the things about brighton is that they have been a very tough side for us deserby is a really good coach i haven't watched that much of him i've read a lot more than i've watched but i think after that game i'm instantly deserby pulled like i was very (laughs) impressed with just how they controlled that whole half i said it on twitter actually that i was very impressed with them we were just better um that was that was it nothing against them they were a great team they were causing us a lot of trouble, even if they weren't managing to kind of break us down all, completely in the first half. But yeah, getting that first goal kind of instantly meant that we could sit back. And that's something I think De teams can kind of... It's probably the the weakest part of De game is he wants teams pouncing onto them so he can kind of just play completely through them like that fluid sort of football, almost like pinball movements just and get through, Um, which he didn't really have the opportunity to do because as soon as we scored... We sat in a mid block, even a low block at times, very organized and kind of forced him to actually bring the game to us, which they didn't quite manage to do early on, especially I think they were also missing both McAllist and and Caicedo in the middle. So they're also um, personnel issues that just made it a bit easier for us. But I think we, we still played fantastically well. Uh, I was incredibly impressed by our out of possession approach. We We kind of managed to just hold them off. And almost in between like completely sitting back and kind of trying to provoke them, there was like this almost hublins first sort of thing about them passing between the center backs and and Eddie particularly and Odo kind of like half committing on. Uh, I do think about like 30 minutes in, they started really pulling us around and pulling us out of shape, um, managing to dismark their players and stuff. But what I was really impressed with, I think, uh, was just basically, you can see our team really plays as a unit now. Like everyone knew... Who they were supposed to replace who, what rotations were going to happen when they were pulled out suddenly party has to go and protect whoever i think the one that really stood up as a nice example is around 42 minutes in um a brighton player sort of pulled martinelli to kind of come um sort of launched a press quite forward inwards creating space for i think it was Tariq lamty outright jacques immediately um, recognizes that pulls out to lamty and then Martinelli immediately recognizes that once he's stopped that press, he pushes back and covers the guy that, that Jacko was on. And they, they kind of had that shape for about 30, 40 seconds before um, swapping back. And you can kind of see that was happening everywhere. I think it was happening a lot more on the right, actually, with them trying to get Matoma, trying to access Matoma and us just rotating between Partey and White and everything. It was very good. That's what really impressed me from us that first half, just our out-of-possession structure.
0: Can you tell Alex got to watch this on a tactical cam? <laughs> <laughs> I did. It was fun. It was a lot of
2: fun. I-, I refuse to watch football games that aren't on tactical cam footage anymore. But yeah. Uh,
0: Max, what did you make of um, that? The, th- the words that Alex said. I'm not even going to try and phrase a question
1: out of it. I'm going to echo <laughs> a lot of his statements. Um, the more I think about it, I mean, obviously... This is obvious, but the fast start was really important for us. And the way that we then played after that for the rest of the half, like Collings has said, has been very different to how we have played. For the majority of the season, we allowed Brighton to have the ball. And you tweeted about this, Collings, and, and I really agreed with it because not only did we allow them to have the ball, but the way that we allowed them to build with these half commitments, as you called it, is really important to sort of stifle the way that Brighton look to build out from the back because their trigger to play out is the opposition's press, especially under the Zerbian. There's a lot of principles of Brighton's play that are one from Potter still and also new new principles that the Zerbi's brought. And I think the main one is the way that they build out from the back. Um and they did build out from the back under Potter, but the way that they do it is is quite different under the Zerbi and it's, you know, very Zerbi-esque and in the, in that they wait for the press and then they launch the ball into into that double pivot. And then, like you said, it's very pinball, pinball-y and they look to uh, sort of play quickly around the opposition's press. And, and Arsenal didn't really allow that. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, imagine if they'd scored first, it would have been a completely different game for us. I think oh, they yeah. would have had
2: the upper hand because then we would have been pushing onto them. And you can see they were breaking us down even when we were in our block. So I think... It would have been a very different game and I can add to that if they had McAllister or like said, it was obviously a good, the conditions of scoring early and them not
1: having all their top players did help us a lot but even that said we, we played really really well. Those two missing is obviously massive for us and for them um, but you know Pascal Gross and, and Billy Gilmore is a, is, a very, is a very good double pivot as well so um, I think we just didn't allow them to do what the Zerbi wanted them to do first half and them being able to play out from the back quickly, using the opposition's press as a trigger, then releases the ball into their more dangerous forward players, Solly March on the right and, and Matome on the left, and the way that their their fullbacks and their wingers rotate um, can really pull teams apart. And we just we were positioned really well, and our shape was was established and and organised um, and sort of stifled any real attacking threat that they had.
0: The clearest sign of how this game has changed my opinion on Brighton is that after it, I put Solly March in my fantasy
1: Premier League team. <laughs> you
0: know what? I love
1: that. Solly March is one of the most interesting players. He's been at Brighton now for, I think, ten years possibly. Um, and he, I think, under like maybe any other manager, if he was at any other club, he would never be an established Premier League player at this point because I think managers would have just completely lost their patience. With his lack of output in front of goal.
2: To be fair, I think I had him in a like FM thirteen or fourteen for my Everton save, and he
1: was pretty good. So, there you go. so I no, mean, most was,
2: most Premier League teams. <laughs> he was, yeah. Well,
1: he was an England under twenty one player while Brighton <laughs> was still in the Championship, and then he's been with us or with Brighton since they were promoted, and all the way through. But he's, I think, now this season he's got five goals and assists, and it's his best year in terms of in terms of goal contributions already. So. um I'm I'm happy that he's doing well and he's he's suiting this side really well. He's been given this he's he's made this right right wing position his own. Um and I'm a big Solly March fan and I'm happy he's doing well, so I'm I'm glad to hear that.
0: Yeah, you, good good to hear about homegrown players doing well. And speaking exactly. of star wingers, Gabriel Marcinelli contributed to three of our four goals this game, scoring one and then two of his deflected shots led to two of the other goals um, Alex what did you make of Martinelli's role in this game I saw some people saying
2: that I think I think we can say we can say for the goal he scored he definitely should have passed that off to to Saka but I'm, I'm happy he took that shot on that's an FPL reason to be honest but I'm <laughs> happy he took that shot on um, but yeah I think I think I saw some people saying that he was having a difficult game I actually saw that for for Newcastle as well which we'll speak about later and I don't know i th- I think he, he makes a lot of things happen and those two deflected shots obviously contributed to that hugely. I think he's just the sort of player who isn't overly worried and trying to overplay things sometimes and just really does make that decision, which we kind of, we've lacked in the past. And also it's a good balance for the other sort of players that we, ha- we do have. In terms of how he's been playing tactically recently, um, I've noticed that he plays a lot higher up. Obviously we were speaking about on the last part, how... There's far less rotation now that Gabby Jay's out because we don't have all those people play, pulling around as much, right? But what I've kind of seen as a result of that is we are using Martinelli almost as the spearhead of the attack or in like sort of a a lean to the left sort of way. He's, he's sitting high left and and Eddie still sits a bit deeper, less involved in sort of like dropping into midfield and more being like a a reference point to play off, almost like a target man in the in the way that target man to feet in the way that we use lucker. Um, when, when, when Arteta first took over, to be honest. Um, so yeah, he's been a lot less involved in rotations. He's kind of like the guy we're really trying to play long and behind to at the moment. Um, still does that stuff that he loves to do and has been doing all season where he drops into midfield into those pockets to receive, but a lot less. Um, and I think it's been working. Uh, I don't know if I should speak about it. I guess I'll just touch on it in the Newcastle game. I actually thought he was fine. I just think nothing really came off for him that game against a very organized team. I mean, he lost a lot of his 50-50 deals, but I didn't think it was something where he did badly. I think he just, nothing really came off. I think the general play was really good. And yeah, I'm quite high on Martinelli. I think he's getting a lot more uh criticism at the moment, but but I'm not too worried. I'm actually quite happy with with how he's been playing.
0: Yeah, He's getting a lot of criticism because people are taking notice of him because he's playing well. <laughs> there you are. Max, what did you make of Martinelli's performance against Brighton?
1: Yeah, sort of three points, actually. Um, the first is, I thought, Tarek Lamptey sort of won the first half battle uh, yeah. against Martinelli. But the fact that Martinelli's deflected shot led to a goal kind of speaks to how important that perseverance is with with Martinelli's plays, like you said, Collins, he, he'll 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 do it again and again and uh, sort of relentlessly attack his fullback and when that happens, chances will appear, it's inevitable. Um but yeah, there were numerous occasions in the first half where he sort of found himself isolated against Lamptey and you know, it didn't come off for him. Um and my second point leads to that because I, I loved that for Nketiah's goal, he went on his left. Um and it's sort of a small detail but the first four or five times he was isolated, he tried to cut in onto his right and the shot was either blocked or, or Lampsey sort of cut off any angle for him to, to take a shot or play a pass. But then he got the ball, he ran at Lamptey and he went on his left and the shot came off Sanchez and, and Ketia was there to tap in the rebound. So we sort of mixed up the way that he attacked his fullback, which which led to our our third goal. And then the final point is I'm sure you got a great view of this on the tactical cam. <laughs> but our fourth goal, obviously, as they should, everyone's talking about that Odegaard pass. I was thinking about it and I've never really thought about the way that Brighton can be exploited because I kind of don't want to think about that for the most part. But obviously against <laughs> Arsenal, I do, but Brighton's centre-backs, and it really was a common theme under Potter and it's been continued under Deserdi is that their centre-backs aggressively follow the centre-forward when he drops. Um, and you'll see in that moment, Lewis Dunk is right on Nketiah's heels when uh, when the ball's coming to Odegaard and, and is dropping. Um, but what I love from Martinelli is he starts that his running behind about a second or two before the ball hits Odegaard's foot. Um, and obviously, Tarek Lampty is rapid, so you're not going to win that, that, that race nine times out of ten. But he had a step on him um, and he was in behind. And obviously, the pass was incredible. We could talk about that all day long. But... Martinelli sort of identified the space that Dunk had vacated and then made that running behind, which made that pass possible. So um, yeah, just small little details, which allowed for for three of the goals. And even though I don't think Martinelli was exceptional, those three moments were, were pivotal in Arsenal winning the game.
2: Yeah, I was also very impressed by that fourth goal. I mean, everyone was speaking about Odegaard, but like you said, that dynamic advantage to get a start early and then also just cutting off across Lamptey just a little bit so that he can have that space in front of him and still taking the shot where Lampty's kind of snapping at his heels. It was, I think it was, it was a, as good a run as it was a pass, to be honest. I was screaming for him to square it as well. <laughs> it, it was on, it was on. Uh,
1: if you shoot this and we and, and you don't score, I'm going to be so upset with you.
2: And the shot wasn't even a good one, to be honest. But yeah, we'll take we, we'll take those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted to actually ask, do you think that they started... Uh, that the Zerbi started Lamptey specifically to to handle Martinelli because I noticed Lamptey was tight on Martinelli pretty much the whole game, especially that first half we spoke about Lamptey winning it like he was he was right on Martinelli's back every time he dropped, he was right on him every time
1: he was trying to run behind. Yeah, I was thinking about this because I mean, on one hand, Veltman is excellent defensively. He's been he's been an unbelievable player, especially in the in the past sort of twelve months for Brighton, and he's usually tr- entrusted whenever whenever Brighton play against a tricky winger like that and, and the zerbi has not really tried Lamptey as a right back in a four, Well, he's only really played a four apart from the first couple of games, um, yet and then he and then he did against Martinelli. So I wasn't sure if maybe there was an injury for Velman, but he then started for Brighton against Everton. So I don't think it was. Okay. So I think yeah, I think it was tactical. Um and I think Lamptey did quite well. Um I think there's people that doubt if he can play in a four long-term, mainly because of his height. Um, but in terms of his ability to defend 1v1 and, you know, the threat that he offers with his pace, both offensively and defensively, I thought he did quite well, so.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it makes sense as well. I think one of the big things Martinelli's good at is that sort of slow down, sudden acceleration, and Lante's probably the best fullback I've ever seen in that stop-start acceleration sort of play, uh, yeah, defensively 100%. and offensively. Yeah, for sure.
0: Let's finish off the discussion about Brighton then on a slightly more negative note, as this is one of the first games we've seen where we've got a bad word to say about William Saliba. Of course, we've waxed lyrical about him during the first half of the season because he's been pretty, pretty great, but he's had a couple of mistakes in his game in the last couple of weeks, and the Brighton game is where it all came to a head, of course, with that second Brighton goal being, as Max said, basically his fault. Uh Alex <laughs> what what did you make of Saliba in this game and his form in recent weeks
2: Look I think his form sort of tailed off in recent weeks um I will say I thought he had a poor performance after watching the Brighton game I was like it was bad the whole way through on rewatch I actually thought he had a pretty good first half and then a bad second half which I think is not the first time that's happened where he's been really good or solid in the first half before, before sort of tailing off in the second half of games. I think Leeds was another one where that kind of happened. Maybe the Southampton game too. Not sure if I'm getting the right games, but it's happened before. Uh, I don't know how worried we should be. Um, I think it's something that I've had an issue with Saliba since he was at Marseille, since he was at Saint-Étienne as well. He He's sort of overly nonchalant at times, and I think he gets too comfortable, and then that's where mistakes sort of creep in. But at the same time, he's 21 years old. So... See so yeah, I'm not overly worried at the moment, but it's obviously not great. I mean, there've been mistakes. There was a mistake in the West Ham game, I, I remember. Um obviously it was the penalty, right? And I don't think he dealt with that too well. Then now a mistake in the Brighton game, and now a mistake in the Newcastle game, which we'll get to later. So see, so yeah, it's not been not been completely great, but
1: I'm not too worried either. He's still twenty one. It's normal for a 21-year-old centre-back to make mistakes and I think his nonchalant way of playing, style of playing, plays into that. And if he can sort of find the balance there because the nonchalance in many ways is great and allows him to, to be a calm presence for us on the ball and, and defensively, but it has led to these moments of you know too much nonchalance and a bit of naivety when defending. And if he can find that balance... I think he can cut out some of those mistakes because they just seems to be mental lapses more than anything. I just think it's something we have to kind of live with either because the value he adds is
2: huge, especially in terms of the rest defense. Like he he's the main guy in the rest defense, in my opinion, in terms of his reading of situations and the speed to, to recover. So he just offers so much, and he's had a number of good performances, that goes without saying. Uh, he just adds so much that it's worth those mistakes, but they are frustrating because they always feel... I think there's two sort of situations where I've noticed he really struggles when he goes up against really physical forwards, sometimes not only just in the terms of the physical battle, but also the judgment of what to do. He can struggle a bit um, or make rash decisions because usually he's pretty good at sort of getting close to a player um and kind of dominating them physically, but like in such a way that he doesn't overcommit. But when the player he's going up against is stronger, I think he struggles a bit more and then gets a bit more rash maybe to compensate. But then the other thing is he's made a lot of mistakes when he's almost kind of Felt that he's kind of the situation's being handled, you know what I mean where he's got a cross to cover or he's just making a pass backwards or something that's where the mistakes creep in and those are the ones we really need to get rid of but I think it's it's just time I, there was that that Wenger video that's been roaming like floating around the last few days about him speaking about he's going to have a 21 year old center back and he knows they're going to make mistakes, but you have to you have to live with them to grow and I think it's it's
1: true it's just what we have to do. And he knows he's going to win that physical battle nine times out of ten. So I think he is naturally a bit more front-footed and, and aggressive yeah. in those actions. And then when he comes up against a more physical striker, and Evan Ferguson's only 18 years old, but he's he's a big, stocky guy. Yeah, and I think Saliba just thought I'm going to out-muscle him. I can be sort of calm in this situation. Um, and then he wasn't in a crucial moment in front of goal. And you know, when you make a mistake in that area of the pitch, you're going to be punished. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think I think Ferguson caught him by surprise a bit, like yeah. the way he got pushed apart, but yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, let's have a quick break and then we're gonna step into the Newcastle game. So, that was a lovely break. Now let's come back and talk about the Newcastle game. The Newcastle game, it happened. We drew nil nil in a game that I think can be adequately described in a word as frustrating. Max, do you have any more words to add to frustrating?
1: I'll add two in front of that. Really effing frustrating <laughs> <which> was <laughs> was, was, uh, was how I felt as a fan. I'm trying to analyse this as as a as a viewer, um, as a professional viewer, uh, <laughs> but yeah, as a fan, it was extremely frustrating. And I think one Newcastle are a very good side, um, very resilient, very very organized and strong defensively. And on the other hand, they are smart and masters of the dark arts and knew what they were doing and, and knew exactly how to frustrate us and were successful. Um, so that's one That's that's one side of it. The other side is I think there were positives. I think, one, we started like a house on fire, on the front foot, aggressive, um, played the way that we wanted to play, um fan inroads into our wide players, Martinelli and Saka, allowed them to get in the ball and attack their fullback. Um Saka had the beating of Dan Byrne in the first couple of minutes and I and I thought that was sort of going to be how the game went and it's how he's played against Dan Byrne in the past when he was at Brighton. Um we had we had five shots in the first six or seven minutes and that really uh that, that really speaks to how dominant we were um and, and the second point is i thought especially in the first half we counter-pressed really well and that's been a theme of ours that i've really enjoyed watching and enjoyed watching develop this season i think we've got a lot better at it um you know immediately after that we lose the ball we managed to suffocate opponents i think it's helped bringing in zinchenko and moving ben white to right back um our fullbacks inverting and sort of being aligned with thomas partey on the edge of the box um in a in a more narrow shape um, sort of allows us to collapse on the other teams and sort of forces them to clear the ball right back to our centre-halves and then we go again. And I think we did that well against Newcastle and they struggled to sort of get out in the first 15 minutes. Um, Callum Wilson had a shot, like, I think maybe 50, between the 15 and 20-minute mark and he sort of just turned and had no one around him on his own team and just took, a, just took a shot from, like, 25 yards out and it just fell right into Ramsdale's hands. And I think that really speaks to how well we were doing. It was all they could really conjure up in the first 15, 20 minutes and led to them taking that that shot that was never really going to go in. So uh, I was happy with how we started. And then the Newcastle Dark Arts appeared and fouls weren't being called and fouls were being called on their, on their side. And I thought that really the only way that they bothered us was from set pieces. Um, and the rest of the game was my fan perspective really effing frustrating
2: yeah <laughs> i will say from set from set pieces every set piece was kind of terrifying to me i felt like one of them was bound to go in but yeah, yeah. speaking about the dark arts i don't think i'm going to say too much more because my head was gone but it was just their out of possession shape was something that was very intriguing to me going in they press with three at the front which is obviously isn't it's one of the le- one of the more rare ways to press and they use both of their wingers to kind of push the the center backs inside to the other center back, and then they'll use their um their striker to kind of capitalize on that, right? Um, which sort of do- is generally dangerous against teams that build out in that 3-2 shape, especially because you can get Wilson right on the middle guy. Um, so I was interested to see how we'd kind of build out, and same as we did versus Liverpool, we, we actually used both of our fullbacks quite deep to create that depth to make them jump out, um jump to the press, you know, pull it pull them apart and open up those pockets in the middle. So that thing, I, I think that worked really well. I need to watch it back. Um, I'm not sure if that's why we kind of started so quickly against them. I do feel that they were started off kind of defending in a 4-5-1 sort of shape, so probably not. But but it did work well. We did manage to get a lot of access to Erdegaard early on um, to suck a little bit deeper too. And obviously from that, sort of getting it into Erdegaard, then you suddenly create either that ball for whites on the overlap or you get it to suck in those 1v1s. Um, a little bit higher up versus Danburn. So I think it was working really well. Um, didn't seem to be quite as effective later on in the game. Uh, just I think the energy of Newcastle's midfield is, is exceptional, to be honest. And so even when we had sort of tactical little, little edges at times, just the intensity of guys like Bruno, Willock, um, Longstaff even really makes them, and then, um, Jolington off the left really makes them quite quite an
1: outfit to play against. I thought Eddie Nketiah's performance, especially in the first half, was quite promising. I think Newcastle's, you know, midfield three did did well to negate Jacker and Odegaard's, you know, qualities and, and influence. Uh, didn't really allow them to get on the ball. I thought they both didn't play great. And so we entrusted Nketiah more to drop deep and receive and help us sort of build out and, and spark attacks. So I was looking into the numbers and he, he was fouled four times. I think he did well sort of holding holding it up and, and winning us fouls and, and and moving us up the pitch. He received the ball 28 times. Um, I think he completed like 10 of his 12 first-half passes. Uh, and I think his development as a centre-forward and his ability to, to play with his back-to-goal and receive the ball under pressure, you know, Sven Botman and, and Fabian Schär are two very physical centre-halves. And I think he, he did really well in the first half and... Couple times he received the ball, f- even from Ramsdale, and managed to turn and-, and play one of Martinelli or Saka. So that's something we'll need from him, and obviously that's something that Gabby Jesus is is so good at, and Ketia, not so much. But um, he did really well there, and uh, I thought that was one positive that that we could take from the first half, especially.
0: Those of us watching uh, on the Sky Sports coverage in the UK would have heard Gary Neville saying that like using this game as an example of why Arsenal need a striker. And I think while I, I I don't disagree with the point, I think this game is one of the worst examples of it because Eddie was really good, as you say.
2: Yeah, I, I just don't think there was much space to work with either. And I think Eddie did really well, as Max was pointing out, especially in the physical game. I mean, it's kind of crazy to see his development from a physical perspective purely from the guy, the stringy guy who came back from Leeds even, you know what I mean? Like he's really, he's really bulked up and holding off guys like Shah and Botman, is not easy. I mean, Botman really had to, to foul him quite a couple of times to kind of stop him rolling off him. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think he had one of the better games and I don't
1: think we had a bad game. So, so yeah, it was good. Yeah. I agree. I will say that if, you know, we scored after 64 seconds or whatever against Brighton, if we did the same against Newcastle, the complexity of, of this game changes completely. And then Newcastle need to take the initiative and, mm. It would, have been a, it would have been a very different game. The ball would have been in play for a lot longer than it was. So To add to that, I also think
2: their out-of-possession shape would have really served us then because we would have had all four sitting deep, inviting them onto us. They weren't really invited that easily. You kind of had to bait them a little bit. But obviously, when, when it gets to the second half and you're trying to get back in the game, I think we would have been able to find a lot of gaps through them. I'm, I'm pretty confident if we'd scored, apart from set pieces, we would have had a pretty good handle on them. But as it as it was, we scored early against Brighton, and we would have probably struggled if we didn't. We didn't score
1: early against Newcastle and we did struggle. So it's one of those. And it sounds obvious, but that's exactly why Arteta wants us to start on the front foot so aggressively. Um and we have done that on, on on basic basically in every game this season. Because it if we do score, it completely changes the way that the game's gonna go. So
2: it's still crazy how we manage to have those fast starts every single game. Like I mean it's not it's obviously not as simple as just being like go on let get out there and start immediately you know what i mean because otherwise every coach would be doing that you know you don't have pep saying oh guys let's start playing after the first 30 minutes i don't know what we do to start so quickly and so, start so aggressively maybe it's something as like different as just how we prepare mentally before the game but but it's it's been huge for us i mean starting those games early i think they have like kind of effects on like xg and stuff because we do sit back a little bit more um Although we have been a bit better about trying to build on leads now, which is nice to see. We weren't doing that even even earlier in the season.
1: That's been a big development because I think the starting fast has been a theme for since last season. Know, well over 12 months. yeah, but an issue for us last year was just our natural tendency. I think it was it was mainly mental for us to once we took a lead to then sit back and uh, we've done it yeah, like you said, we've done a better job of that. I think the main reason is the it's the light bulb team talk. Just gets us, just gets us ready. <laughs> Let's fucking go, um, guys.
0: I, I just before Christmas, I saw like someone was selling an enamel pin badge of the heart and brain holding hands thing, and I really, really want it. <laughs> I really want it.
1: Yeah, I'm not in my usual room right now, but I've got a couple stickers. Someone, some friend um, of mine, that's... sent me them. So like, I've got. <laughs> Something in the mail coming for you. I was like, what is this? And it was four of the, the, the Arteta Roaring stickers. So I was like, "Yes." Have you felt class.
2: that you have a better mentality because of those now? You kind of see them on the wall and you say, today's going to be the day.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I start my mornings fast. Right?
0: So, uh... <laughs> yeah, you stick by the principles. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to uh, another individual player who last episode we talked about in... Very glowing terms, because he was really, really good. Uh, but in this game, he got a little bit of stick uh, online, especially for his performance and his perceived going missing. People thought he went missing in this game. It's Martin Erdegaard. Uh He's obviously been really, really good in these last few games. We mentioned earlier about how his Hollywood pass against Brighton has been catching the headlines, but he struggled to stand out against Newcastle. Uh, Alex, what did you make of his performance?
2: Uh, I would have loved to watch the game back to have had that opportunity because something I always say is whenever I rewatch these games, Odegaard is always better on the rewatch when you're kind of focusing on a morn. Maybe watching a little bit less, like through your fingers, a little bit less emotionally, and just really focusing on what the players are doing. He always comes out looking better. Even when he has amazing games, I think he always looks better on rewatch. So I would have loved to have done that, but yeah, it definitely did look like he struggled. I thought he was fine in the first half, um, and then kind of struggled in the second half. So, so yeah, I definitely do, I definitely do see the the criticism there. I think
1: it's it's fair to to some extent. The main thing I took away from it was not so much his performance, but Arteta's reaction to it, and feels quite telling that he didn't bring on. Fabio Vieira, for one of Odegaard or Xhaka, felt like the natural change, felt like we needed a change, felt like it, he could be someone to bring a spark off the bench. And I don't think this is the first time he's been, he's been maybe unwilling or um, a bit you know, shy to bring a player on like that. There was, I feel like there was periods even the beginning of last season, end of the season before where Martinelli would sit on the bench for the entirety of the game. And it felt like there was opportune moments to bring him on and Arteta didn't. So I don't think it's so much maybe that Arteta doesn't believe in Vieira or maybe he just doesn't trust him yet. But, you know, we, we've talked about our depth and our need for attacking signings. He's not even using the little amount of depth that we have right now. So it was it was a weird one. I'm not sure, you know, the, the front three have played the full 90 minutes over the past two games. Odegaard and Jacker have too. Um, you know, in, in situations like that, that feels like a moment where Fabio Vieira could come on and and make a difference. Even that late chance with the potential handball where Xhaka sort of tried to slide it across, it kind of reminded me of that goal that that Odegaard scored from the Vieira assist just before the Christmas break or the World Cup break. You know, just like moments like that could have been a chance for Vieira to make a difference. So, yeah, Odegaard, not at his best, but I thought what was more telling was the lack of subs. Yeah, I definitely agree
2: with that. I would have brought uh, Fabio Vieira on. It also felt like one of those games where just having that sort of final ball or maybe even a shot from outside the box, two things that I think Vieira is very good at, probably among the best in the squad. I think he probably does have the best final ball in the squad, I'll say. Um, So I really would have wanted to see him on. At the same time, I do see reasons why maybe not to bring on because of physicality. I mean, Vieira is literally a twig and Vieira, uh, and Odegaard was getting bullied of the game, as he does tend to against really aggressive midfields or even um, centre-backs who push up on him. So I think Vieira might have struggled with the same. And also, it was a tight game, so you don't really want to lose Odegaard's defensive ability and what he brings to the team in that sense. Um, but I would have brought Vieira on. I thought it was weird. I like your point, though, Max, about the fact that this is sort of what Martinelli went through a year or so ago. Because it's kind of re- it's kind of encouraging. I mean, you see how trusted Martinelli is now, and Arteta's has always been very vocal about being a big fan of Martinelli. So that does sort of ease some sort of growing doubts about like where Vieira fits in or how ho- or high uh, where Vieira fits in or how highly he's held in Arteta's esteem. I think it's just a first season thing, as you see with lots of City players at Man City. Maybe it's just learning the system, getting used to it. Maybe also just building up a bit of physicality. But yeah, I do I do think the game was there for the taking. It wasn't really happening for Odegaard, so I would have brought Vieira on, but I kind of see both sides, I guess.
0: I, I know it's kind of out of keeping for us to mention this on the pod, but I think there also have been a level of the old intangibles to it. Like, Odegaard and Xhaka are two of the leaders in the squad, Odegaard being the captain, of course. So having them on the pitch during one of the... Well, what we all agree is one of the most mentally taxing final few minutes of a game of the season as everyone's getting frustrated and riled up. It probably... I probably wanted to keep them on the pitch for their leadership and for their helping to keep everyone together, at least I feel like that might be a factor that we haven't really discussed so much. Is that something that you guys saw? Is that... Am I chatting at my ass?
1: <laughs> I always have this like dilemma mentally as well like I'll be like oh, you this sub needs to be made this player is fresh he can make a difference but at the same time you're right there's there's a lot of value in keeping the guys on that are, that are leaders that are you know in the rhythm of the game but at the same time you know we've we've made these complaints about depth we have worries about depth you've got to use that depth in certain moments and it's a, it's a tough one there's a balance that has to be found but that felt like a time to make a change. And I, didn't, I haven't re-watched the whole game, but I saw these, I saw a compilation of, of some of Zinchenko's passes into the final third, sort of in the last 20, 30 minutes. And he was in his usual zone, you know, where he'd inverted in for like a deeper midfield role. And he fed three or four passes into Xhaka. And I think for all, of, for all that Xhaka has done well in this more advanced role this season, him, ret- him receiving on the half turn and then looking to create on the ball is not his strength. And a lot of those passes fell into his feet. And it just feels like if that was Vieira, something might have happened. So, I don't know, maybe something that Arteta might think of doing in, in, in future games. Yeah, I think that's a very fair
2: point. I mean, I actually didn't even think of, of taking Jacques off. I felt like he was quite impactful, but maybe it was just him being used a lot in those final few minutes and the ball coming into him. I mean, there was also balls from Gabriel into into Xhaka as well, I remember. So so he was definitely being used. Maybe just, you know, that, that sudden just moment of like a little bit more agility against a defense like that to be able to, to get a shot off. I, I think we should have made a sub. The other thing, though, is that I was kind of thinking earlier today is that were our players that tired? It wasn't one of those games where I really felt like anyone looked like they were running out of energy later in the game. So So that was the one thing that I was kind of considering, like maybe obviously... The coaching staff have much better access to information about how tired everyone is, or not. Maybe they just felt that there wasn't an, uh, a need to make a change. There was no tiring legs.
1: We we have a really strong, clearly a really strong plan A, but it does make you think like what is our what is our plan B? Because our players are really settled in these specific roles, and you sort of look at our front six. You know, you're not going to bring Partey off unless we've got a comfortable lead and, you know, you can bring on any to to finish the game off. But then, you know, you're not going to swap Xhaka and Odegaard's sides or you you couldn't take, you know, I don't think he'd take off Xhaka and move Odegaard to the left. At least he hasn't done that yet. I think in theory it might work. Like, we don't really have a plan B and we haven't had to really use one yet this, this season. But yesterday felt like the first time we'd really sort of, we'd come to a, I don't know, we were at a stalemate in the second half. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem like we really have a clear plan B at the moment, Um, whether that's a personnel change, a shape change, something like that. Um, It's just, just something to think about, I think.
0: Before we move on and have a look ahead to the transfer window, which is now open, let's take a step back and have a think about what these games mean for us in the wider context of the season. Because I think we all agree that Brighton and Newcastle are two of the toughest teams that we will play this season and we've seen evidence of how we might adapt to the loss of Gabi Jesus as well. Uh, Alex, what have you taken from these results? What have you learned from them uh, that you're going to take forward into the rest of the season?
2: Um, I think there were two tough teams. I've been looking at them since long before the World Cup break um, with my eye on them and then the next two coming up. So I think taking four points across the two games is is good. Uh, I, I'm actually not sure. I have a lot of confidence in the team. I'm not sure if I would have like taken those four points ahead of the time rather than seeing how the games played out. But but I'm not I'm not upset with it. Maybe with a little bit of distance from the games that we have four points from them. We'll see how the next two come. Uh, it's just a tough one because City feel. I mean they they drew to Everton, thank God. But City just feel that. Like, from seasons past, there's that inevitable feel that any draw almost feels like it's a loss um we've only we we've got now we've played what fifteen games this season, sixteen games this season, and we've drawn one we've drawn twice and lost once. It's actually a really really good run. It's our best ever in history, and I still have that like nagging feeling about dropping points, but yeah, I can't really complain it was a really even match against Newcastle in the end. I think we also got a little bit lucky in a situational sense versus Brighton, um, who could have been a lot more difficult uh, if we didn't score early or if they did have their first-choice players available. So, yeah, I'm I'm relatively happy with it. I think what's good about it is, especially in the Newcastle game, we were pushing until the end. Um, We didn't look like we were losing hope. And I think the most important thing right now is that there's still that mentality and that, that energy from the squad, that momentum continues. And I don't feel like that draw
1: halted the momentum at all? Max? I feel like I've got a lot of different thoughts. I think the main ones are, Nketiah is more than capable. We can trust him. But we do need reinforcements. And I think the Newcastle game showed that. You know, I think the Brighton game showed the quality that we have in-house. Uh, the Newcastle game shows that we just, need, we just need a little bit more to ensure that we are, we are in it until the end. I also think it's a great sign that we've come away from those two fixtures somewhat disappointed with only four points and you know you said we've drawn twice and lost once it's funny because all those all three of those games feel felt very very winnable um so yeah I think there's reasons to be disappointed and and people are obviously frustrated by what happened in, happened yesterday against Newcastle but this team is this team is doing really well and uh you know, those are two very tough fixtures and we've come at them with four points. So I think we've got to keep looking forward. We now have a, a, a significant break until the next Premier League game. So hopefully we can get a transfer over the line and a specific player that, or potentially two players that we're going to talk about shortly. So
2: Yeah, and Smith throw back too, hopefully mm. soon. Yeah, and so I don't that. know what's been going on with him because he was supposed to be back for the, pre- well, the mid-season friendlies. And... Hasn't happened yet, but I think he's someone who would have been huge to have off the bench.
1: That's another good point. Yeah, I, I think
0: even like leaving aside the fact that we didn't bring many players off the bench, we started exactly the same starting eleven in two games that are three days apart. And I don't think there's gonna be many times throughout the season where we're going to have the luxury of being able to do that in important games. And I think as we go through the season it's going to be important that we have rotation pieces that are trusted, not just to come off the bench, but to start in runs like these. I think that's one of my key takeaways from this, is that the consistency of squad selection we've been able to put together through the first part of the season and these last couple of days is a privilege. And if we have any major injuries or we're not willing to rotate, then we might run into some problems pretty soon.
2: Agreed. On that note, shall we get into speaking about the potential reinforcements?
0: Absolutely. So, there are two major rumors that we've come into January with, and they're actually different to the two. Well, one of them's different to the ones that we came into the World Cup thinking we'd be looking at January for. We came into the World Cup thinking we'd be talking about Mikhailo Mudrik and Danilo from Brazil. We're not really looking at Danilo anymore. Like, there's no... Rumours around him have died down quite a bit. But rumours have picked up for a very, very exciting name. Joao Felix. So, let's start off with Mudrik, who has been called many things. uh, E-boy... Uh, Arsenal super fan, <laughs> but he... I think he's both. <laughs> yeah, he de- probably both.
2: Alex, what is he as a player? In terms of position, he's a winger. Um, weirdly, another left winger. I know he spent some time on the right, which I've not managed to catch any footage of that. But he is another left winger when we've got Martinelli there and Smithrow, who also played a lot of the left. I mean, I actually liked Smithrow on the right back way back when he was playing there. So maybe he moves back across rather than Mudrik. But it's interesting that we are going for Mudrik after we were going for Rafinha in the summer, who is a very much a right winger who can play on the left. Um so I think that does suggest that we're very much looking at profile rather than just position. And I can see why Mudrik fits. He's got he's very he's very quick, he's rapid, but he's also got a really nice close control. Um off the left, so you can kind of He's got that nice, really tight dribbling style where he can kind of then use a heavy touch to cut in, cut across. It's it's kind of similar to what Martinelli does, but I'll say it's a lot more aesthetically pleasing, and there's a lot more maybe close, just footwork at play rather than Martinelli's kind of got that I don't know that scurry vibe around how he how he moves with the ball. Um, and yeah, I think he's he's got a lot of goals. He's also pretty creative. He likes those sort of um, combination plays. I can I can see where he fits into the team. Quite a lot, and I, th- I think what I when I went into watching him, one of the big criticisms was that people said he would struggle against a deep block. I I I could be wrong. I've not watched enough to be completely sure, but I don't really have those worries. I can see how he's kind of good standing up against deep blocks, especially with that that combination play and that acceleration that he does have to kind of create separation. And he's very good with his movement. He's nice. He's he's a nice, smart movie. You know He'll pass and then immediately run it. Kind of like how Almiron plays, where he does a lot of those double movements and stuff. I think maybe Modric's a little bit less um, cunning in his movement, but there's a lot of talent there to work with. So so I think he's a nice fit for the squad. I don't really have prob- uh, concerns about him versus a deep block, um, but I definitely think he'll be uh, someone who's dangerous in transition. Especially imagine we're holding a lead later in the game and he comes on for Martinelli. I think he'll be very dangerous on the break.
0: I like Miguel Almiron. I like the idea of a faster Ukrainian Miguel Almiron. <laughs> that sounds fun.
1: Yeah, whenever in, in my head, when I when I picture what we need as like a, a depth wide player siding, I always think that we need someone capable of playing on both sides because we have an established left winger and established right winger and not much depth behind it. But, you know, that, that profile of, of winger is pretty few and far between. But Mudrik does feel like he has the capability to play on both sides, even though he predominantly, or almost exclusively, at least recently, or from what I've seen, plays on the left. But, you know, we've, we've, seen, we've seen Arteta's track record with wide players, and it feels like this could be, or Madrid could be a player that he can really mould and help develop, because, you know, at 21, he is still quite raw and, and, and quite new to the professional game. I also think what stands out, he's quite two-footed. Um, and that makes me think there's potential for him to be a threat on, the, you know, on the right as well. Um, he scored a number of goals with both his left and his right. I think like some of the main goals I've seen from him is where he starts on the left and sort of drives inside at pace, and then and then scores with his right foot. But he's also scored a number of goals on his left. So I think for us, what we really need is one a player that can come on and be a threat as a sub for one of Saka and Martinelli, because we don't really have that. We had that for, for a period with Reece Nelson. I want to see Smith throw in more in some of, those, in some of the, one of the two attacking eight roles when he comes back. Um, but two, if one of those two goes down, we need someone, one of Martinelli or Saka goes down. With an injury or, or a suspension or whatever, we need someone that can come in and, and sort of be somewhat of a like-for-like replacement. And especially as a Martinelli replacement, it feels quite similar, although their styles are quite different the threats that they offer are very similar. That stood out to me a
2: lot, as I kind of saw a lot of Martinelli, even though they're stylistically, it's just not there. Stu- Martinelli's a lot more stiff in a way, and maybe a little bit more aggressive against players. Um, you know, body-to-body pushes past them a bit more. But I saw a lot of that in terms of how he likes to stand up his man and then use that acceleration to burst past. I can see he looks like someone Arteta would like.
0: One of the biggest sticking points, it seems, with the Mudric signing... Is the price tag we are willing to pay around 60 million pounds ish? Shakhtar Donetsk want upwards of 80 million pounds ish. Yes or no? Would you spend 80 million pounds plus on the Buderick?
1: I never know what to say for these because I'm always like, on one hand, it's like yes, you know, look, look where we are right now. Look at the opportunity we have. Let's spend this money. Let's go get this player. That could that could be the difference maker for us. Come the end of the season, and then you know you have the other side of the discussion, which is he's not worth that, he's not worth this money. He's, uh, he's sort of a project player, and that's that's an established player fee. I think, I think he's I think he's worth it. I think we've looked at some of our signings of the past two seasons. People scoffed at the money we paid for for Ben White. Um, I think that's turned out to be a bargain. Yeah, I
2: scoffed. I, I scoffed. And I, was, I was very wrong. I was, so.
1: <laughs> uh, I was actually. I was a guest on a, on a different Arsenal podcast to talk about Ben and that was that was the main topic of conversation. <sighs> the, p- football prices are ridiculous these days. I didn't think people thought it was a project signing. He ended up being an instant, you know, impact on our on our team. I think Arsenal will only spend that money if they are really confident that it's that it's more than a than a project signing. And Mudrik feels like, even though he's had very little experience, he is very young. We've not seen him at this level on a consistent on a consistent basis. He feels like a player that could come in and be an immediate impact. And if that's the case, I think he's worth the money that that they want. I don't think we're going to have to pay. Exactly what they want well I think we'll bring it down a bit if it happens, but I'm willing to go pretty high up to to their demands.
0: That was a very good yes or no answer there, max
1: <laughs> my long window <laughs> answer is yes, let's go for it um I've changed my tune a
2: lot on on transfer fees over the last year or so. I think always oh, used to be someone who liked to get you know the extract the best value, but I think the reality is for these mega rich clubs, which Arsenal is one of them, I think pretty much we're getting to the point where. 50 and 60 premier league clubs at a time will be part of the mega rich clubs i think at the end of the day it kind of becomes a little bit academic if you're spending 60 million or 80 million on a player at the end it's about whether they're going to be a success or not so obviously if you're spending a fee that big they need to be a success because it's also it's a commitment to a certain number of years of them being stuck in your squad whether you're putting them out on loan or not spending spending their wages and and whatnot right I think those become the bigger issues than that that initial outlay Um, so I'm not too worried about if we do spend 80 million in the end maybe there's a little bit of like will it be a pressure on the player himself and obviously attackers face that pressure more than any other type of type of player but I'm not too worried as long as he's a success it's more about whether he will be Uh, I don't have enough to say yet but there are a lot of reasons to be confident in it. So I'm I'd be happy with that fee if we think he, he's worth it. It he just really have to work out because it's a it's a big outlay obviously and it's a big commitment to the player.
0: Ultimately, is he worth about eighteen million pounds more than Nicolas Pepe? Probably.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'd say he's worth yeah, a solid yeah. double, but that's not even worth watching him. So maybe I should be nicer than Nico. But yeah,
0: right. Let's move on and very quickly discuss Joao Felix. Uh, we don't need to go as in-depth on who Joao Felix is, because unless you've been living under a rock for the past five years, you probably have a vague idea of the kind of player he is. He's a striker-ish, ten-ish kind of forward. He exploded to life at Benfica in Portugal and then moved for a lot of money to Atletico Madrid, where Diego Simeone has strangled the life out of him because that's what Diego Simeone does. But now, he's av- apparently available for loan, and there's rumours linking us to him, there's rumours linking United to him. I think I see saw someone linking Chelsea to him, but that might have just been a clickbait YouTube thumbnail. He's on the market, and he's a very, very, very good player. What do we think?
1: It's a reportedly large loan fee, but I would be contradicting myself if I, if I said no because of the fee. So... His profile, <laughs> his profile makes him very appealing, a versatile, a versatile forward that could provide depth for us, but also starting quality. Um, if anything, was I think he'd instantly compete with Inquietio, also be an option, a potential option in one of those wide areas. I don't think it's not it's not as natural to him, but I could see him fulfilling a, a role there. I think like for me, Madrid is the priority, but if. If it's possible, I don't see why we shouldn't shouldn't go for it. So I'd say I'm sort of the same boat. Like, why not? Would you get both? Because that's something people have been speaking yeah, about. Yeah, I've, I've, I've gone back and forth with this because, like, depth is clearly an issue for us. We've just spoken about that. You know, the front three has not even come off in the last two games. But then you think we have, we'll get Jesus back in March. And then we have three centre-forwards right there who are all... Very, very good players. Um, like, uh, I don't know. Like The fact of the matter is we are in a title race and we haven't been in this position for a very long time and more quality is not really a bad thing. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. Like right now, we do need him because it's January 4th and Jesus is probably not back for two more months. There's a lot of games in that time period. So, like, Yeah. It's one I'm not decided on either. I love Felix as a player. I also think
2: there's a huge amount of talent there that can be tapped into that hasn't been. I feel like bus potential is something that gets thrown around. I feel like it, there is a bit of a bus potential. Them like I can see him coming and it's just not working. Although I kind of have a faith. I see exactly where he fits into the team. I think he's a great stylistic replacement and role replacement for, for Jesus. But, but in terms of signing both... The one thing that kind of, both him and Mudrik, the one thing that kind of worries me is that João Felix is not going to come here to be backup to Eddie and catch it until Jesus comes back, right? I think he'd want to come and immediately be a starter. And I don't know. There's just such a good synergy around the squad at the moment. I don't know. And Eddie's also delivering. Like you, you spoke about earlier this in this episode about how Eddie is someone that we can trust going forward. And I believe that too. I don't think he's necessarily able to do the job that Jesus was doing and I think Felix probably can do that job a lot better right but there's a really good synergy we are making something work with the slight tweak we've used at centre forward and I just don't know what it would be like for the squad to bring in Jao Felix and immediately relegate Eddie back to the bench because Jao Felix is not going to come to be sitting on the bench for Eddie it it makes me
1: I'm an error a little bit there's a lot to say about squad dynamics and morale and everything like that. So these are factors that are for us we don't really know about. Like maybe maybe Arteta's selling it because he's saying you can compete with Eddie. But you know, once he's through the door, he maybe he loses yeah, that battle. 100%. And he's a lone player and, you know. <laughs> yeah. He can come and quickly pick up a medal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no, I, it's not
2: it's not the worst it's not the worst holiday in, in London. It's a really <laughs>
1: difficult one and sometimes I look at myself I'm like, why are you why are you stalling on the the opportunity or be, being in favour of the opportunity to sign Jao Felix, Jao Felix on loan?
2: Yeah. If we sign him, I'll be happy and excited. I just don't know. Obviously, we're also dealing. I don't. I actually don't think it's realistic that we are going after both, as some people think we are. I think it's one or the other, and I think we're going pretty hard for Mudrik and using Jao Felix as sort of like a a bargaining chip against Shakhtar, right? Um. But in this hypothetical of getting both. I'd be happy i would feel very confident about our forward line, especially if we lose someone. um It wouldn't feel like the hit it would feel null but but yeah, I don't know. I think there's some there's some weird like thing in the back of my mind that says like, no, that I wouldn't quite want it but but yeah, we'll see.
0: I think back to something I saw friend of the Pod and Manchester United fan Aaron Manisse say in the summer which is when, like, a talent as... And I'm paraphrasing here. But when, when a talent as obscenely good as Felix is available, you just get it, and you worry about how it fits later.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do take that point as well. I think he's a huge talent, um, and he's someone that can really change a team. So I also don't really think it's going to happen, but it's, it's yeah. nice to talk about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite feel... Something doesn't quite feel like it's happening there. But I think he'd be a great if Mudric like if we got to the point now where we think 80 million is too much for Mudric. Maybe it's this opportunity cost thing I was touching on just now. Like maybe now we shift our attention to Jao Felix. We can see him on loan. Obviously it's a 15 million fee, and that's before six million in wages, so 21 million overall. Um But yeah, maybe it's worth if we can get a nice option to buy afterwards, I think I'd be very happy with him as well. It would bring up questions about what we do with Eddie and Balogun in the summer, of course, but yeah. Those are issues for later. We've That's a, a whole other, it. a a a whole other conversation.
0: <laughs> we'll leave the transfers be for another day, as it's almost the end of the episode, so you know what that means. It's time for everyone's favourite new potshot segment, Alex's trivia book. Tows' oh. <laughs> trivia book. And I'm going to ask Max, can I have a number between 1 and 133?
1: I'm going to go with my favourite number. 14. Right, Uh, we're going to page 14.
0: Obviously in in honour of Eddie and Ketcher. Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) I'm going to pick the question at the top of page 14, which is the first English league match to be broadcast live on radio in 1927 was between Arsenal and which club? A. Sheffield United B. Liverpool C. Sheffield Wednesday or D. Manchester United Max, as you're the guest,
1: you can go first. Sheffield Wednesday.
0: Collins.
2: I was going to pick Sheffield Wednesday, um, but you know what? Let me go for Sheffield United then.
0: The answer is A, Sheffield United.
1: Wow.
2: A yes,
0: it's Obviously my first choice. In, <laughs> in <high. laughs> well, with the trivia done, uh, that is all we've got time for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us, Max. If people want to find more of you, where can they do so?
1: Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you can find my personal Twitter at uh, at m T-A-Y-L-O-R, one underscore. Um, and then I'm also a founder and a writer at Top Bins Talk. Um, and yeah, those are the two places you can find me. But yeah, I had a lot, had a lot of
2: Great content. So yeah, I definitely recommend them as well. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Awesome, of course. I am on Twitter at Alex Towles. Carlings is on Twitter at Alex FRCO. The pod is on Twitter at PotshotPod. Pod. You can find our intro and outro music on the Spotify's at JW Blake. It's made by James Blake. He's great. Uh, please like and share and tell all your Arsenal friends about how sexy we are and how good we are at trivia questions. And we will see you next week for a preview of another north london derby how exciting is that see you there